This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Lisa Kovacevic. Joining me in the cave tonight are Cerise Howard and Stuart Richards. Hello, hello. Hello there. Hello there. (laughs) Hello over there. Uh, On tonight's show, family drama meets thriller in Xavier Legrand's custody and documentary meets heist movie in American Animals. Uh, But first, we're kicking off with another type of documentary. This one is playing at the Environmental Film Festival Australia. When Lambs Become Lions offers a poignant and complex perspective on the human and environmental tolls of the ivory trade. With more than 300,000 elephants killed every year for their tusks, Africa's elephants are in danger of disappearing completely by 2025. In 2016, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta theatrically torched a stockpile of confiscated ivory worth $150 million on the market, declaiming ivory worthless unless it is on our elephants. In a Kenyan town bordering conservation land, the film follows one poacher known to us only as X and one park ranger, Asan. X trades in black market ivory while Asan works to protect the endangered elephants from which the ivory is harvested. To add to the complexity of the situation, the pair are cousins. While X fights to stay on top of his illegal trade, government forces mobilise to destroy it. And when he turns to his younger cousin, wildlife ranger Asan is conflicted. He hasn't been paid in months and they both see a possible lifeline in the other. Both men are struggling to survive in Kenya's harsh environment and each are battling their own conscience. With unparalleled access, when lambs become lions, was three years in the making. Credited as writer, director, cinematographer and editor, this is John Casby's feature debut, although he's already a a lauded filmmaker, winning an Emmy for his short film Heartbeats of Fiji. What did we make of this morally ambiguous documentary? I don't know. Where do you want to start? No, I'd like to pile in there because I'm especially curious about this unparalleled access because I couldn't help but feel incredibly suspicious the entire time I was watching this. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm thinking... Uh, I mean, it takes a little while to tease out the relationship of these men to one another and to gather that they're on different sides of the ivory poaching trade. And I I just marvel that someone can embed themselves with both sides of this, especially the criminal side, and that the criminals would be so game as to have the footage of them shot, footage of them plotting, scheming, and actually uh, going about the business of killing elephants. I mean... That's the risk imbecilic. was incredible. I know the risk was incredible, and I I had the same question myself. I was like, but this guy is surely putting his life on the line by participating in this film. So yeah, I was I was intrigued as well by what what the situation was with the filmmaker. And his name is X. Mm. Obviously, trying to hide his identity, but, but his face <laughs> his is all face over and it. voice mm. are not hidden mm. in any way. And then we learned that he's related to someone whose name we do know, mm. <laughs> and and also this guy's clearly a bit of a, a local celebrity. This ex, he's the sort of gangster figure who fancies himself as just a man about town. He's the mm. a happening cat, and you know, he, he sort of says that he doesn't. He'll never do the killings himself mm. of, the, of these elephants that he 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 puts it in the hands of someone else. And I I know, and I kind of felt that um, I felt that that perhaps that was some within that system some way of protecting himself. And maybe that's why he was he was allowed on screen. Although the person that was carrying out the executions of the elephants was on screen. So mm. yeah, it and was, identified early and on identi- as Lucas. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was intriguing. But at the same time, don't you think, Cerise? That there's this interesting thing with this film where we are judging 
um, these people for this atrocious, this atrocity that's happening to these elephants. But at the same time, the filmmaker is asking us, I guess, to question, you know, is human life more valuable than than animal life? And it's particularly now in, in you know, where we're at in terms of climate change um, and the fact that these elements excuse me, these elephants are, are going extinct, but these people are hungry. These people are desperate people. And if you were in the same situation, would you do the same thing? Do we have any right to judge from our very privileged position, you know? Well, there's documentaries, an ethical minefield all around. I just mm. don't know that the, the filmmakers necessarily negotiated that minefield very adroitly themselves. They, they, um, I mean, first, I, I, I have no idea how they came to be embedded within these Two camps, the, these rival camps, especially when the stakes are so high, the the rangers uh, and poachers both make no bones of the fact that this is an extremely perilous endeavour. Not because they risk being stampeded upon by elephants or other angry, enraged, terrified game, but rather that the rangers are in the habit of shooting poachers or feeding them to crocodiles. And how the filmmaker just can hide behind bushes when rangers are approaching the poachers is it sort of boggles my mind, and it just made me wonder if. A filmmaker didn't come to this with a particular thesis he wanted to put out there, which is a, a fair enough thesis right, that, that um, you know, to explore this ethical conundrum and ask privileged people like ourselves, the presumed viewer, to say, well, what would we do? But I, I just can't help but feel that the whole thing felt quite contrived and especially as the production values are so high it's gorgeously shot but mm. i'm finding that more and more with so many documentaries now we, we reviewed a film ghost hunter a couple of weeks ago it was so cinematic and i'm finding that more and more and there's another film we're about to speak about which raises the stakes even and then some you know i, f- I feel like that there's a lot of um I don't know if it's pressure, but it's just a, it's a it's a new approach to the form that is really such a high quality. I mean, he was the DOP as well, so he's clearly like a skilled cinematographer because it is beautiful. It has this sort of real intimacy about about the shots. He has so the access is quite incredible, and it, you know it's more of this sort of cinema verite style almost. But you really feel his presence so because he has this thesis, as you say, Cerise, that runs through. I mean, you feel his presence, but he also goes to great lengths to hide his presence as well. So we don't know how he embedded himself yeah, I'd like to in know. this camp. Uh, we don't know, I guess, the director's own feelings when uh, sort of certain moments of violence could potentially occur. Uh, and I think for me, there were two big takeaways from this documentary. One was I think the slickness works against the film because mm-hmm. it is so beautifully shot and highly stylized to the point where it's almost performed. The shots of the the interviewees going about their business is so well made that it does look rehearsed. And then subsequently I was also thinking about at what point does the director step in and actually start influencing what's happening in front of the camera because there are moments when uh, poachers are caught and they're being kicked and punched and then, you know, we hear one other um, gameskeeper saying, yeah, we kill poachers. And then those particular poachers, we have no idea what happens to them next. Mm. So there's no kind of text on screen. There's no sort of voiceovers at all. The director is trying to be completely absent, but it results in just they're, just me kind of not knowing anything about this case, about this case study. And 
Yeah, and then there's later on when they're about to, you know, potentially kill an elephant. And I think for me, I was asking the same thing. At what point does the director step in and stop an endangered animal being hunted? Well, that's interesting. There was a film um, at MIF called A Woman Captured. Did either of you see that? I missed that, but I heard it tell a fair bit about it. Yeah, so it was about um, uh, the modern slavery, essentially, in Eastern Europe. And um, so this filmmaker, again, had very incredible access, was was speaking to this woman's cat. This woman was essentially an, in, an in-house slave and she was speaking to her captors and to her. And then it becomes this kind of escape movie because the, the, the filmmaker can't morally stand by and observe this anymore. She has to get this woman out and she becomes a character within that film. So... Yeah, it's interesting when that shift happens. I remember it. It was. It's funny because I think we're more accepting of that kind of style now with documentary. That sort of journalistic um, uh, ability to sort of get more involved with the story rather than keep your distance. Whereas I remember at university studying film and stuff, there was all this sort of controversy about filmmakers getting too involved with the with the documentary. You know that they were they were criticised for it, and now we we sort of almost expect it. Well, I don't think there's anything the matter with a filmmaker getting involved so long as it's transparent that they are now part of the story. If, if they are unseen but manipulating events, that seems to me highly unethical. If they are seen to be manipulating events, I think, okay, now they're part of the narrative and you know, we follow it and accordingly. And expose themselves. Yeah. yeah. I, um, and, and look, there are all these drone shots in this film as well. Now, when people are trying to be surreptitious, who, who would want a drone flying overhead, even if it is to get a a lovely view of uh, the sweeping landscape, whether it's just for purely aesthetic effect or if... I mean, I, mean, I couldn't figure out why if he's so close to the po- uh, the poachers, why the poachers wouldn't say, could you just pop your drone up for a minute and just fly <laughs> it over there? Mm. Just so we can just see just quite where the elephants are heading and mm. scare them. <laughs> scare, yeah, it was all very peculiar. The, the drone footage was, again, beautiful, all these lovely overhead shots, but it just drew attention to itself and it just didn't fit into a... Um, a logic of this world if this really was an observational documentary. I just, I found this beautiful and and I found the issues it was engaging with complex and, and fascinating and definitely very troubling. But I, I felt... I felt I was being toyed with watching this. Yeah, there are really interesting elements of, uh, you know, the hunted versus the hunter, Mm. uh, this fine line between kind of needing money to survive and feed your family, but then also potential greed where both the gameskeeper and the poachers are both kind of almost crossing that line. I think that's really, really interesting. And there are some shots that are stunning. There's one drone shot going over the plains as all of these antelope Mm. run across. And that's stunning. Mm. That was a breathtaking moment. And when they come across elephants, there's a real kind of thrill to it when you're with them. Yeah, there is. There there really is. And so there are some really great moments. But, yeah, I just was really, really cynical. It's so slick. The relationship between the two men is slick and the directions they go in is really... Um, kind of juicy in a narrative way where it just it just seems re- slightly contrived. And we were talking about that that showy footage, the the president, was that his title? The president of Kenya? Oh, or, yes. Yeah, the president yeah, yeah. Uh, of um, making this big show of setting alight all of this seized yes, ivory. Yeah. And even that was aestheticised to it the was. nth degree. It yeah. was a stunning image before yeah. it was set alight and then stunning... On, it, on fire, it, but incredibly depressing, but it seems mm. so, so aestheticised that um, I, I felt kind of crushed by that. And I also thought, I don't actually understand even that gesture. I mean, if there's to be no more ivory trade, why, why wouldn't you at least having, you know, 
you have that there, why would you just set it on fire? It seems actually mad to me. And um, me too. I had the same. I utterly had the same, wasteful. Yeah, I had the same, exact same reaction. I was like, couldn't they have at least sold it and then invested that money in preserving the elephants that yeah. are well, left? So why, why would we need to hunt anymore? We've got all this. This yes. is surely enough. It ends here. Yeah, it was madness. It was madness. It was peculiar. But again, it makes me. Every time I have those thoughts, it does make me go. But who am I to be having? I I don't I I just feel like I come from such a privileged position and I, I I just feel scared of judging I think when I, I can watch and these I will <laughs> <laughs> I can and I will yeah. judge yeah, yeah otherwise it's a waste of good privilege yeah. <laughs> it's a waste of good privilege um, but look if you are interested in, in uh, seeing when lambs become lions it is playing as part of the environmental film festival Australia you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 R in Melbourne Australia well, as Jean-Luc Godard once said, all great fiction films tend toward documentary, just as all great documentaries tend toward fiction. Since the dawn of the medium, cinema has fully and equally relied upon this essential combination of, of authorial artifice and photographic reality, and British filmmaker Bart Layton produces work that blends documentary, dramatisation and authorial style. In 2012, Layton made the documentary The Imposter about the disappearance of a young boy and the, and the notorious French conman Frédéric Baudin. It was an interesting mix of interviews, dramatic reconstructions, pop culture, archival footage and audio that culminated into a kind of documentary thriller hybrid. In American Animals, Leighton develops this technique further so that the reconstructions are the main body of the film, in effect making it a based on a true story fiction feature, punctuated by real life interviews with the actual people involved in this chaotic crime reflecting on their lost youth. American Animals sees art student Spencer Reynard, played by Barry Cogan, living a conventional life in Kentucky and yearning for the types of extraordinary experiences that his artistic heroes Monet and Van Gogh endured. Believing he needs to suffer as they did in order to create great art, Spencer seeks to inject excitement and purpose into his mundane existence. After a tour of Transylvania University's school library, he discovers that it houses an extraordinary collection of rare and highly valuable books. The only thing protecting them is a middle-aged librarian and a glass box. He mentions this to a disaffected and charismatic college friend Warren Lipka, played by Evan Peters, and soon a heist plot to steal the book is set in motion and two other student friends are enlisted in the plan. <clears throat> Eric Borsuk and Chad Alan. Um, so it's a real yeah, mix of the genre, of two genre forms. And Cerise, were you familiar with his previous film, The Imposter? No, I don't think I caught that. No, Stu, you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. I've seen The Imposter. Yeah. Great film. It's an incredible film. I actually rewatched it today as a bit of a, mm. of, a, of a refresher, but this sort of has taken it to a, I felt, to a whole other level. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but he definitely employs those sort of similar, really interesting techniques of, of interviewing subjects about a real life case and then re-enacting excuse me reenacting them but doing these weird things of uh, injecting uh, the real life person into the reenactment and and then other times breaking the fourth wall and what a smart film it's very smart yeah. so yeah. the imposter is i mean i that was a documentary that has i guess very developed sort of uh, reenactments in that film. And this is, uh, you know, a fictional, not, I mean, it's a, a, a really excessive dramatisation that has a lot of interviews in, with it, in it. So it's almost like the other way around. Yes. Yeah. 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 How did you find it, Cerise, was, as, as not having seen The Imposter? Um, interesting. Uh, there's, there's, I was struck by two cinematic uh, 
not exactly precursors, but two films that instantly reminded me of a, well, of a melding of one being Reservoir Dogs, which is explicitly uh, nodded to yes. uh, in a very humorous way. In fact, mm. I had one laugh out loud moment during this film when <laughs> one of the characters dismissed Reservoir Dogs as his least favourite Tarantino film. <laughs> I, I just laughed and laughed. <laughs> and um, somehow across between Reservoir Dogs and American Splendour. Oh. Do you remember American Splendour oh, about vaguely. Harvey Pekar, the the a comic book artist oh, who was yes, played yes. by Paul Giamatti but also appeared as himself and yes. he had a whole cohort of peculiar friends who were, um, had actors play the part of them but they also were apparent. It's all very uh, meta. Uh, it was very <laughs> meta. And uh, this this film, American Animals, struck me as a, a lovely meld of the two, not least because there's artwork involved very heavily in this as well, mm. being these stunning uh, Audubon illustrations of birds and, and, and there's a whole, whole lovely opening sequence where we actually see in lovely high resolution a lot of those stunning images that uh, made this book at the centre of this heist, this, this uh, one-off, actually sort of a two-off. I think there were two, two parts to this Audubon compilation of uh, artworks. They were just... Um, Actually, because I, I work in a museum, I work in that sector, mm. I found the, the lack of security at this place astonishing. <laughs> I'm sure it isn't well, the same anymore. What, what year was this set? 2003, this was, 2004. Yeah, it's really not that long ago. No, not that long ago. And, and Anne Dowd can take anyone. Yes. So Anne Dowd plays the librarian <laughs> and you might know her from uh, The Handmaid's Tale as the... What is her? She's that horrible character in The Handmaid's Tale. The uh, Lydia? Not Lydia. Aunt Lydia. Aunt Lydia. Yes. Lydia. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, she, yeah, she's, she's got such a presence. Actress. Yeah. yeah, I um, I thought it. Yeah, it was interesting. You mentioned the Reservoir Dogs thing, and so I, the the characters in this film seem to be so informed by cinema and media in, in their idea of what a how a heist should play out. Um, and so it does the and the, and the filmmaker takes that on, and that's why he does sort of create this very stylized, could be sort of Guy Ritchie Tarantino type um, film. Uh, and particularly, it's sort of it's sort of highlighted by the use of music. I mean, it's set in two thousand three. 2004, as we say, but the music is from the late 60s, early 70s, like only, I mean, that hurdy-gurdy man, the Donovan track which we just played is a 1968 track and there's The Doors and and so it has this real feel of a genre piece and it to me sort of played out as in the minds of these young men wanting to achieve that kind of um, I don't know celebrity or something that they were that, that they were after. Well, we see them actually watching heist films it looks like they're going through the canon of, of heist films <laughs> yeah. and I guess if you are planning a heist these days and wouldn't otherwise know where to begin where, where else would you turn to except for the movies which tell you how to do it wrong as a rule. Yes. There, there are not a lot of heist films where it goes swimmingly. No and I liked that, um, and, and, and it really it doesn't for these guys either, and I liked that um, you don't hear from... So the, the heist is about stealing these books. There is sort of one casualty in that, aside from these young men's families, um, the, the, this librarian that they have to sort of attack as part of the plan um, is obviously going to be quite affected and traumatised, but you don't, she doesn't, she's not really a voice or a presence in the film outside of the reenactments until um, the final shot. She gets the last word and I thought that that was great because you don't, you don't get, you don't get, you know, henchman number three's um, (laughs) take on how, you know, a ransom rant played out or or a heist played out. And I, I liked that the filmmaker chose to include the real life librarian at the end there. I thought that was great. Yeah, I thought that was done really 
smartly mm. because so much of the film they're held up as rock stars. I mean, the way their families are interviewed uh, and sort of they're held up as being these really cool bank robbers. Mm. Um, but it, it, then sort of as the film develops, you realise well, actually there is a casualty and they are injuring someone and they are traumatising someone and this there's no, there's no um, there are victims here. Uh, to this crime. This is not a victimless crime. Uh, so I thought that was done really, really well. Mm. I too, me too. And um, yeah, and by, I think, you know, by the end of the film too, I mean, they've they've gone on a journey, you know, it's not, they are sort of, I think that that's all in their mind though, that they are these like cool cats, you know, and by the end of the film, you sort of see, um, a few spoilers here, I apologise, um, but it sort of it co- comes sort of full circle, particularly with uh, the main character of Spencer, who's an artist. Um, you know, can I say what some of the outcome of this, is that okay? To say? Well, I think you can because the film is, it spoils itself almost from the yeah. get-go. It's not a mystery to, as to how it's all going to turn out. I don't think. And it is a very well-known story. Yes. So they, they do do time for the crime and mm. um, it's really, the, it, it's sort of wonderful the way the filmmaker brings you back. At the start of the film, I think um, there's a newspaper being thrown on the street to the young yeah. um, Spencer, uh, but, you know, before the crime has taken place. And at the end of the film, he's back at home having served his time and he's painting and he's an artist and he primarily paints birds, I think, from memory, which yeah. is incredibly ironic because they were stealing a book of um, beautiful rare birds. Um, and he'd been a jailbird. And he'd been a jailbird. Oh, there are so many hey. connections. <laughs> <laughs> you should be a writer of film stories. Um, I know, yeah. right? <laughs> um, yeah, and at the end of the film he sort of steps out onto the driveway and a van drives past from the reenactments and throws a newspaper to him. And there was just like nice little touches like that, I thought. Yeah, and I think the interviews are used really smartly as well. This could easily be a tacky film. But, easily. Uh, the, the interviews are a really smart method of getting insight into the characters, uh, which I think is a really... Which, I can't think of how else they would do that apart from maybe voiceovers where sort of uh, characters are sort of uh, interacting and they're planning the the heist and then the interviews come in and then they talk about what each of the characters are thinking in that particular moment. Mm. And so I think the the use of these interviews is a really great way to inform and extend upon uh, how these scenes play out. It's also uh, sort of, again, like so many documentaries <laughs> that are historically based, it's this sort of meditation on memory and truth um, and Spencer so they're all four of the, the young men who participate are talking to us about the crime and they all remember it slightly differently and then uh, you know I think Spencer says at one point so the guy walks up and he's wearing a purple scarf and then he, um, what's the other the other character just Warren Warren says um, oh yeah this guy walks up he's very sophisticated looking he was wearing a blue scarf and the cam and the filmmakers change the, these actors and what they're wearing as we're told as we relay the story by the, the young men. Yeah, I thought that was very clever. That moment reminded me of Drunk History. Yeah. The, the yeah. YouTube web series <laughs> yes. where we've got these interview, really lively, charismatic interview subjects and they they say something and then sort of the the reenacted footage sort of starts to sort of affect, be affected in real time and... Yes, and they're yeah. lip-synced, which they, they u- utilise that a little bit in, in this as well. So you do have actors like um, Barry Cogan speaking as an actor and then sometimes that's overlaid with the real um, uh, Spencer uh, Reinhardt's voice uh, overlaid on him and that was quite clever. I also really enjoyed some beautiful camera work with... They had a little um, to-scale model of the library that they were working with about planning their high 
obsessed and they just look like children. Um, but the camera utilised angles um, that were within that model looking up at them. So, you're, so they're looking down on, on you. And then there was shots within the library itself looking down as if that was the model. I just thought that that was really beautifully ex- executed. Yeah. yeah. There are periods which are less drunk history and more stoned history as, as Spencer <laughs> and, and was it Warren? Warren? Warren. Yes. Yeah. Uh, debate. Oh, each opined how they thought things had had um, happened. And, and when we see them both, say, in the car, um, the, the, there's a lot of passing of joints back and forth. So it's a little wonder their memories are a little wonky as to quite how this whole thing came to be conceived and really who was the ringleader, though it seems pretty likely it was Warren. He was a bit of a loose cannon. Yeah. Yes. But then again, there were, there were times where I think we were were asked to to sympathise more with some characters than others, even though ultimately they were all a little unsympathetic because they were rich. Very rich. Yeah. But, I mean, we were talking about uh, when lambs become lions and the notion of truth in documentary and how there needs to be some, uh, I guess, sort of up upfrontness in terms of how this story is being constructed in mm. front of us. And, you know, when lambs become lions is very slick and we become cynical because of that slickness. Mm. This film... I think it's 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 very uh, sort of uh, self aware. Very self aware. That's the yeah. word. Thank you. Uh, self aware in terms of how it's telling this story and how you know their truths are all conflicting and it's, it's very upfront about that and. For me, I appreciated that. Well, I think it sort of sits in that sort of reflexive style of documentary where you're you're made to be aware of the film making process and the mm. f- and film as an artifice and stuff. Well, I hadn't even thought of this as so much as a documentary. And there's one other film actually at the very outset that this reminded me of, uh, a film I really adore that was largely under-celebrated, I think, and that film is I Love You, Philip Morris. And that film begins with a disclaimer... <laughs> Uh, well, at first it, it, it announces uh, the events in the story. I, I forget the exact phrase, but th- this really happened. And then it pauses and says, no, this really happened. <laughs> so that you then have to follow the uh, dramatisation of it all because there's nothing there which uh, suddenly takes you out of the sense of it being dramatised. But go with it, especially when one or two plot uh, devices, oh, well, a little turns in the narrative are absolutely outrageous and extremely offensive, but they are true. And you go, oh my God. And then you could naturally, then you, you have to accept them. It's a, the, the greatest gift for a screenwriter imaginable to have uh, truth much more outrageous than fiction could ever kind of get away with. And in this film, it begins with um, uh, words to the effect, something like this, the events in this what does it say? It says uh, that this it, is based on a true, true story. story. And then and it then then removes based on, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, this is a true story. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So it's really pressing its case for you to take it at face value, even then for the film to subvert that somewhat by letting you, making it clear that the Rashomon effect is in play here, that there are different um, participants or viewers of the events who each have their own take on what actually went down. But I, I, I like that these films, I, I like that that opening gambit a film that basically demands you to accept what you're being spoon-fed. And it works works a treat in this film. Yeah, yeah. it reminded me uh, very much of Errol Morris's Wormwood, which is actually a series on, I think you can see it on Netflix or something. It's the same sort of thing, but it's um, but it, that film is very dramatised in a way that doesn't blend, he doesn't blend the interview subjects the way that they're blended here. And I think I prefer this style because it feels more honest somehow. I don't know. I mean, there, actually, there's a couple of, there's a, probably a couple of Errol Morris films that sort of fit within this genre too, I'd say. But, um, yeah, I find I just find him uh, a really interesting filmmaker. It's just very creative and new and fresh and I kind of I, I appreciate that. 
Yeah, yeah. just a really interesting director. Yeah. Um, uh, and the performances are great as well. Mm. So um, Evan uh, Peters, who plays Warren, uh, could easily be that just cliched stoner character, that kind of dropkick college student. But we get insights into his family and I think the film really sort of smartly sort of paints him as a very sympathetic character. I think the two other supporting uh, characters in the group aren't fleshed out a whole lot because they come quite late in the piece. Yeah, one of them's a total Winklevoss, if you know what I mean. Oh, yes. So, yeah, it, well, he's Chaz. like the Winklevoss yeah. twins fused into one character. Yeah. He's a real yeah. jock. Yeah. Yeah, entitled and jock. <laughs> who knew that on this show we would cover two films in the space of two weeks which had a part for Udo Kier? I mean, <laughs> things are looking up for cinema generally, I feel. Can we make it three in a row? Is it possible? Is Udo in something else that... Show might be able to cover next week. We'll, I have a we'll dream. Have, we'll have to look into it. Maybe we could have a Suspiria look back. We could. Look back do, do we, we miss look it? Forward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we did do a, a big Suspiria show uh, um, a year or two back when Alex Heller Nicholas, a former co-host, had a book that yeah. was newly hitting the stands at that time. But of course, yes, the new Suspiria take is due in November. So yeah. yes, it's obviously going to be covered on this here show. Mm. It should be. I just to sum it up too. Just on the actors, I really enjoyed Barry Cogan as Spencer Reinhardt. I think I enjoy him in almost everything. He was in The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which we reviewed was it earlier this year or late last year. But he's just he's remarkable in A Killing of a Sacred Deer. He's chilling, and in this, he he really was able to sort of. Um, withdraw and uh, tease out some, you know, empathy from me for him and compassion, which I, I, I just thought he was quite a standout performance for me. Actually, I just thought the cast was really quite well quite well done, quite well put together. Uh, well, as we said, um, uh, American Animals is the film we've been discussing. Three Triple R Film critic Roger E. Burt once remarked, it's not what a film is about, it's how it is about. And certainly on paper, actor-turned-director Xavier Legrand's custody is as, seeming, is as seemingly as simple as it is as its title suggests. A couple divorce, a custody battle ensues, but what begins as a family drama soon escalates into a taut thriller. Miriam and Antoine Besson are divorced. The film opens on a custody hearing between the two. Miriam is seeking sole custody of their son Julian to protect him from a father she claims is violent. At 18, their daughter Josephine is an adult and freely rejects any involvement with their father. Antoine pleads his case as a scorned dad whose children have been turned against him by their vindictive mother. Unsure who is telling the truth, the appointed judge rules in favour of joint custody. This results in Julian being taken away from his mother's home to spend weekends with his father, a hostage to the escalating conflict between his parents. Legrand took home directing honours from the Venice Film Festival for custody and the film stars Lee Drucker, Dennis uh, Menashe, Thomas Gioria and Mathilde Anivu. I apologise, I got that wrong. Um, Stuart, we saw this film together last night, but we, we didn't did. talk about it afterwards, as is the Plato's Protocol. Um, with the exception of an aside you made during the film when you leaned over and whispered, well, that's very unsubtle. <laughs> <laughs> did that feeling carry across the whole film for you? This was an incredible film. Yeah. Terrifying. Mm. If unsubtle. If unsubtle. If unsubtle. <laughs> uh, well, that was the only moment uh, that was uh, unsubtle, uh, and this is not a spoiler, when the eldest daughter the eldest daughter is taking a pregnancy test uh, and sort of the box drops and 
You, it's yeah. It's not, I don't know. I would be more subtle if I was taking a pregnancy test. Oh, I see I what you're saying. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the camera shot was just of her feet under the, yeah. the toilet block. Yes. But for the rest of the film, I think it's very smartly filmed. Uh, the use of framing only just gives us enough information in terms of what's going on. Um, so this uh, film is based uh, on a short film Legrand did uh, called Just Before Losing Everything, and uh, that short film takes place kind of earlier in this narrative where she decides to leave him and uh, she collects the kids and uh, he confronts her. Um, and so this f- uh, feature-length film kind of picks up sort of a little bit later in the piece when she's wanting sole custody. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really smartly uh, done film. I think the shifting nature of perspective is really interesting where it begins with, I guess, the, the judge's perspective m- making the decision. Mm. And... And we don't really know the sort of the backstory. And so I think sort of sometimes there might be a bit of creeping doubt where maybe he is a scorned dad. Uh, And then as the film develops, the perspective then slowly does shift to the son and then the mother. And you really start to see just how terrifying this man is. Mm. He's such an excellent performance because when he uh, sort of the first half of the film he doesn't move a lot he doesn't say a lot but it's just in his eyes and the way sometimes he'll just lean over and you know his fuse could blow at any moment it's a terrifying film Mm. the only other film this year where my jaw was on the floor as the credits were going up was hereditary Mm. and that's obviously sort of a very explicit horror film but this is a terrifying film. Mm. His physical presence too. I mean, there's no accident that he was cast in this role. He's a very large man. Mm. Uh, his son is very small, obviously, at 14, or I think that's roughly his age. And his his ex-wife is diminutive. She's very slender and, and meek. Um, and there are and it, and the film is shot so tightly, like a horror film. There is no space to breathe. Um, it, it, you have a feeling of claustrophobia that you're being smothered by this man. And there, are, and so little is given to us actually of, of any history. I mean, we we come in on this hearing with a judge, and that scene lasts an extraordinary fifteen minutes. That mm. goes on for a very long time, and and you are sort of put in the position of the judge, so you are making these judgments. Um, and the the woman's story doesn't, you know, it, it feels like maybe it's hearsay. It doesn't feel strong enough, and you start doubting. And he seems genuine. Um, you don't know where the truth lies. And I thought that was a very clever way to set this film up. Um, which to me sort of culminated in a, in a look at the bureaucracy of um, domestic violence and how we deal with pe- uh, abusers and victims and the consequences of that. I think it, it's quite a taut remarkable film and he sort of he acknowledges oh you know I, I was influenced by Kramer versus Kramer with Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman, um, I think it was 1979, that one, and um, even The Shining, as, as a which which makes a lot of sense. You can kind of see you can kind of see where where he's going with that. Um, although I, I just didn't, I don't feel like that the characters were as teased out as they maybe are in those other films. Um, but but I didn't, it didn't, it didn't bother me. It didn't suffer that much because you're sort of treated like a voyeur, and there's a an old woman in this film um, who becomes a pivotal character um, and she's sort of peering through her door at times, uh, which sort of reminded me of like a Hitchcock rear window or something, you know, um, and and we are made to feel a little bit of shame in, I, well, I felt it, in, in that sort of voyeurism. Well, there's a bit of um, play with class in the mix with all of this as well. A place where they seek solace 
is uh, a place, um, I, I think it's translated in in the subtitles as the projects. I don't know if that's quite the, the, the way that the French would refer to them as or quite have the same connotations as that particular term has. But you sense that previously these folks were maybe reasonably well-to-do. Certainly there are some parents who seem to be quite well off and you get a sense that um, it's not just this one family unit, a nuclear family that's broken down, but there, there are ripple effects and there are lots of people who've taken their sides and we get a sense of who's on whose side, but even that starts to fragment on one side of the equation. And it, it's extraordinary just watching how this whole whole story is, uh, how it unravels. It is suffocatingly tense throughout and that that courtroom procedural business that was it really 15 minutes at the other i mean yeah, yeah. i just read that today i didn't know when, yeah. when i was watching it i i actually thought for a while maybe this will be the film mm. maybe this is this is it actually we're going to be stuck here with these people and tensions will mount and because mm. I, I had no idea where it was going to go i was quite relieved when it opened up but then it doesn't open up that much yes we get to get outside of the confines of a room a single room but everything is all of the compositions are such tight, tightly framed compositions from there on in. And in the car, when the little boy's there with his father... Chilling. It's really chilling. And we see the, the landscape go by reflected on the glass of the windows. The boy looks out. And the, this kid is extraordinary. <gasps> the acting is wonderful, He's, yeah. He, yeah. Yeah, he and the, and the father. They're yeah. both magnificent performances. Yeah. But, of course, it's it's the, the, the kid. You, you I, I felt his... His uh, it was a lot more than just mere discomfort. He was terrified, mm. and uh, I, I felt that this film was extremely effective at transmitting that sort of just elemental fear that a small person has when they just have no power to influence uh, their fate, at least in that moment. And no um, escape yeah. either. Yeah, mm. no, no escape. Mm. It was clever too because, I don't know, for me as a child of um, divorce, that th- those opening scenes where he's having to go to his dad's and being picked up on weekends and stuff and he's not happy and at that point you don't know whether his father is really a violent man or there is really a threat. I just... Uh, I thought the filmmaker was quite clever in setting that up. You didn't know. You st- it could just be that mum has, like, said some bad things about dad and you- he's taken that on board and he's making si- taking sides with mum. But he really did uh, embody what it is to be that child where you're having to negotiate these two parents that... Because it could have just been a family drama about two parents getting at each other through the child and it becomes quickly apparent that the father doesn't really care for the child. It's all about power. It's all about control, um, which is so often the, 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 the issue in these cases that it's just about um, getting at the mother and having control of the child. Um, and that space in the car that you talk of, Cerise, um, it, there, there was something really clever that the filmmaker did too where he the, the first scene he gets in, the father, the, 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 seatbelt, um, uh, the seatbelt alarm is going off, that bing. And uh, the dad's like, put your seatbelt on, son, you know. And you, so you feel, oh, he he's, wants to protect his child. And then later it sort of plays out as like an alarm for, for, the, for the father's anger when the, the kid has just experienced something horrific with the dad, run away, had to get back in the car and the alarm's going off and the dad couldn't care less. And it's the boy who buckles his seatbelt, you know, to protect himself. Um, there are just some really wonderful moments of tension in this film that the, that the filmmaker achieves. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, there's a naturalness to the film and there's a slowness Mm. and it uses sort of that sort of everyday space to create that trauma. Yeah, I 
I mentioned that class business before because it's just been playing on my mind a little bit. I, I, I'm, I'm struggling just that little bit with them taking cover in a, a part of town that is sort of almost painted as the badlands, like these uh, sort of large uh, prefab concrete blocks are in many uh, especially affluent Western societies in the East, less so. Mm. Um, and I'm a bit curious about that. Uh, that, that. That's the only one that sort of qualm I have about this film and that it sort of suggests that this is where this, uh, what culminate, how this film culminates, um, the action. This is where that sort of thing plays out, oh. which I struggle okay. with a little because it's a very middle-class phenomenon as well, domestic violence. So, yeah. you know, I, I, that's my one little thing that... Uh, didn't sit well. Uh, it didn't quite. Mm. Yeah, it, it didn't so well. Mm. What were you going to say about that, Stu? Oh, I just, I, I, I'm not sure if domestic violence is a middle class phenomenon. I'd say it affects everyone. Well, that's what I mean. Oh, yeah. okay. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's not just of okay. the, yeah. the um, supposed more the, the, the poorer folk who live yeah. in the projects. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. What I mean. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I didn't, I hadn't picked up on that, but I take, I take your point. I um, yeah, I, I thought this was yeah quite an extraordinary, surprising film. Very restrained. Um, and if you are interested in seeing it, it is on, uh, I think, limited release at good independent cinemas, I believe, as is um, When Lambs Become... Oh, no, as is um, American Animals, I believe. When Lambs Become Lions is um, currently screening at this year's Environmental Film Festival. Uh, you can check out their program at ifa.org.au. Um, I think I should wrap things up because we are almost at 8 o'clock. Um, you've been listening to Stuart Richards, Cerise Howard and myself, Lisa Kovacevic, on Plato's Cave. You can find the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.